Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship. This week's message is provided by our special guest, Pastor David Harris. We're in a three-week series called No Perfect People Allowed. Last year, we addressed the topic, come as you are next week. Last year, last week, we addressed the topic, come as you are next week. We're going to talk about, but don't stay that way. But today, sandwiched in the middle, we're taking a look at what it means to understand that there are no perfect people. I was a little kid growing up in Ohio, and my favorite class in elementary school was history class. I loved learning about that pioneering spirit, that independent attitude about going on a journey and, and figuring things out and blazing new trails and, and how, how they would just tackle life in its rawest form at any given moment and, and the spirit that drove them and, and all the independence. And, and, and I would study that in history, and I would read books. And just as my little mind could absorb it, I had a huge imagination about what that looked like. And then that got magnified because as a kid in elementary school where I lived in Ohio, every afternoon when I came home from school at 4 o'clock on our local television station, I got to watch the Daniel Boone series. I mean, I even went out and bought a coonskin cap. Can't hide money. And um, I was watch Davy Crockett shows and read about Davy Crockett, and I was all fascinated with all of that. And then when I was like 6th or 7th grade, um, they did the, the television series How the West Was Won. And I would literally watch how the people from the East Coast would go across the plains and, and tackle the Rockies and get out here on the left coast and, and establish life and all the obstacles and frustrations and struggles that they encountered. And, and still that same spirit of American independence, even up until just a few years ago, captivated by that same spirit of just get it done when I watched the movie The Patriot. And there was something that has defined the United States of America in our brief history of just a little over 200 years as a nation. And is that, that spirit of freedom, that spirit of independence, that get it done attitude. You know, we're always trying to be financially independent and we want personal freedoms and we want to have personal independence and we don't need other people. And if you want something done right, you got to do it. Yeah, I mean, you know, and you've got to have enough and you've got to stand on your own two feet and you've got to be counted and, and you can do it alone. But over time, I've begun to wonder, is that really what we want? A couple of years ago, there was a study by a well-known British think tank and they studied all the civilized nations of, on the planet. There are 172 civilized nations. They were studying things like quality of life and life expectancy and life satisfaction and all those different things. And when they got done, you have any idea where the United States rated? We rated near the bottom. As a matter of fact, we rated 150 out of 172 with life satisfaction, life expectancy, the joys, the thrills, the wonders, the enjoyment of life. The little country of about 200,000 people that was rated at the top of that list was the country of, I want to make sure I pronounce this right, Vanatu, not Xanadu, but Vanatu. This little country of 200,000 people, and when their president was informed that they'd finished at the top of this study, here's what he said. Don't tell too many people, please. I, was a, I think he was afraid the Americans would move over there and screw it all up. <laughs> He said, don't tell too many people, please. People here are generally happy because they're very satisfied with very little. Then he said this, ours is not a consumer-driven society. Life here is about community, family, and goodwill to other people. Now, is it possible that in our pursuit of independence, 
That's the one thing that keeps us from gaining what all of us really want the most. In fact, that's what God's been telling us from the very beginning of time. You go back to the earliest pages of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, you get this creation account kind of in broad strokes. God did this, and God did this, and God did this. Then you flip the page and you go to Genesis chapter 2. You get the same creation account, but you get it in very detailed form. And God created, and God created, and it says, and it is good, and it is good, and it is good, and it is good. And then all of a sudden, towards the latter part of Genesis chapter 2, that whole rhythm of God creating and God designing and God beautifying and that whole rhythm and God called it good and God called it good and God called it good. That whole rhythm malfunctions there in Genesis chapter 2 and for the first time in the pages of scripture we see and God says it was not good. What does God say was not good for creation? Not good for man to live alone. Now, there are two applications to that. One, it's not good for man to live alone. And there's the marital application. And God formed the woman called Eve out of the rib of Adam. We see all of that. But there's also the broader scope of the application. That God had created all of humankind, all of earth, and he had beautified it and he designed it. And he had created air and he created water and he created plants and he had created fowl and he had created animals and he had created mankind. And he had created them all to live in such a way that they were interdependent upon one another, not independent from one another. And what happened was when sin entered in... People started becoming independent because they started pointing fingers. They started blaming. Eve blames the serpent. Adam blames Eve. Adam kind of blames God. And God's looking around and he says, but it's not good for man to live alone. He's never intended humankind to live apart from himself or apart from other people. You and I have been created for community. And so why is it that we try so hard to be self-sufficient? Why is it that we still want to be independent instead of interdependent? Why is it we, in essence, want to try and go through life alone? There are probably a lot of reasons for that, but I think one of the primary reasons is, is because when you expose yourself to other people in ways that make you vulnerable and transparent, you expose yourself to the high probability that they might reject you or they might judge you, but in some way they're going to hurt you. Cause to be deeply known makes you vulnerable to being deeply hurt. And most of the time, when you're deeply hurt, it's done by someone who knows you well. And in Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters into the world, and Eve blames the serpent, and Adam blames Eve, and Adam kind of blames God... What you see is Adam and Eve hiding from God, so they're separating themselves from God. You see them in some ways separating themselves from one another and ultimately from each other because the Bible says that they clothe themselves with fig leaves. I mean, Fruit of the Loom's been around since the beginning of time. (laughs) And the truth of the matter is, folks, ever since the garden, humankind, including every one of us in this room, has been running and hiding from God out of fear. As a pastor over the years, Sunday mornings are very important to me, and I have a little ritual that starts about 4.30 in the morning. It involves me getting to the church at least an hour to two hours before anyone else. 
Now, Brian and I worked together for a while down in Los Angeles, so he knows a little bit about this ritual. But in my most recent senior pastor in Atlanta before coming to Bayside, uh, it, was, it played out because I would get there about an hour early. Well, my worship leader, and this is totally abnormal for musicians, was also a morning person. <laughs> and he would come in about an hour after I did, and he would come walking through the door and I'd say, good morning, Lynn. He'd say, good morning, David. I'd say, how are you doing? He says, I'm doing good. How are you? I'd say, I'm good. And he'd go on in. About an hour later, then some of the tech people and some of the other musicians and vocals would start coming in and be like, good morning, Eric. Good morning, Tammy. Good morning, George. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Well, I'm good. And we had this little ritual. And I, I found myself wondering at some point, what if we weren't good? Is it okay to say that when you walk into church? Good morning. And an usher greets you. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Imagine following service, you're out there getting up a cup of coffee and somebody comes up and she introduces herself to you and she says, hi, my name's Sally. Today is my, my first time here. I want you to know that I like this church, but I'm the kind of person who needs a lot of validation. You see, I grew up ugly and unwanted. What's your name? <laughs> or one of the ushers is greeting somebody and, and the guy says, well, it's good to be here. I've only been here twice now, but my name's Sam and, and I know I look confident and successful. I'm the only person who wears a suit to this church and uh, I do that because I'm trying to hide my inner feelings of inadequacy. You see, I struggled as a child, but as an adult, I cope because I, I silently have addictions to alcohol and pornography. What's your story? <laughs> is that allowed? Or are these unwritten rules that say you can't be honest about yourself in church? I mean, we all know that's against the rules. They're man-made rules. They're not God's rules. But we've all adopted them into our lives and into our church culture. We know that regardless of what our week has been like or what our month has been like or what's going on in our family, that somewhere between the car and this auditorium, we have to put on our Sunday best. And I'm not talking about the clothes that we wear. I'm talking about the mask that we portray. And we have to pretend that things aren't going on in our lives. And if we come in and we're honest, we risk being judged and we risk those painful feelings of rejection and condemnation. Even in church, or if you grew up anything like me, you might say, especially in church. Just this past week, as I was listening to some different media things, and you might recall last week I mentioned while people in the United States today are more interested in spiritual things than they have ever been in any time of our brief history, they are absolutely not interested in the Christian church. And I think that's in large part because it's not that they're rejecting, rejecting the love, the grace, and the mercy, and the tenderness of God who gave His Son, Jesus Christ, for us. They're objecting to all the rules, all the finger-pointing, all the judgment, and all the condemnation that's heaped upon them. Thoreau said those famous words most of you could almost quote. Most people lead lives of quiet desperation. And we stop there because we think, yeah, that's it. And we just cut him off. But you're looking at the rest of the quote. An unconscious despair is concealed even under what are called the games and amusements of mankind. And if we're going to be honest with ourselves this morning, we got this church game down and we're pretty amusing, at least to ourselves. We still run and hide, and yet each of us is desperately longing to be fully known and fully loved, and we're looking for a place we can belong. Folks, 
Look at great news. That's exactly what God wants for every one of us. He wants to change all of these man-made societal rules and he wants to bring us back to his primal ways. He wants to wipe out our sin and in the process of that, he also wants to destroy our fears. He wants to destroy independence and isolation and he wants to set new rules of engagement where there's no condemnation, no judgment, no rejection and no need for hiding or pretending about our lives anymore. God wants you to be free in him to be your real self. Now imagine if Northgate as a church determined that you're no longer going to play by society's rules, that you're going to live by God's rules. Imagine when your pastor comes back from this sabbatical that you so graciously afforded him, he comes back to the same people but a new congregation. I ran into him. He was visiting our church last night. I got to meet his wife. He's looking refreshed and he's looking great, a little bit tan. And I'm thinking, imagine he comes back to here and he's the same person, but he's a new pastor. Can it be done? Collectively, can we do it? Can we come to a place where we're willing to release our fears and to learn to trust and to become trustworthy? Remember last week I used that little Rembrandt illustration and I said that what God really wants to do is he wants to clear off the mud that is collected on our soul. And with his grace, he wants to wipe us clean because he never intended for us to identify with that kind of living. I got to thinking about this series. What if this series was not just like a title series because I stole the title from a book? Because it was such a cool title. What if it actually became a motto for the body of Christ? You know, and we adopted these things into our lives. You know, no perfect people allowed. Come as you are. No making out in the back row. Well, forget the last one. (laughs) But the real denominating factor in all of this is if you're playing the perfect people game what you're really saying is is you've grown to such a point in your spiritual life and your walk with God and your walk with others that you no longer need grace there's no room for change and there's no room for personal growth you've got it all together I think the apostle Paul would take exception to that in Romans chapter 3 here's what Paul says For everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. Paul says, you know, there are no perfect people. All have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to play along for a minute. I want you to get a visual realization of what Paul is talking about. And the way I want you to do this, I want you to turn and look at the people sitting around you. You've been wanting to all service anyway. <laughs> look up and down your row. Look at the people in front of you and behind you. Look at people who have got their hair fixed just right. Some of them got some cool clothes. They brushed their teeth this morning. They come in looking good, smelling good, behaving nicely. Do you know that those people sitting in your row and sitting around you over the course of their lives have said things and done things the extent to which if you knew would literally appall you this morning? 
Did you know that the people sitting around you who look so put together and are wearing their nice mask and their Christian smile have said things and done things that would absolutely turn your stomachs? Now I want all your eyes focused on me for a second. Do you know that this guest pastor from a pretty decent church up in Granite Bay, over the course of his life, has said things and done things, the extent to which if you knew them, you'd get up and walk out of this room before service was over and you wouldn't come back next week to hear me again. All have sinned. And all have this thing in our minds. Maybe even as I was talking this morning and I mentioned that, there were brief flashes of your life that were playing across the screen of your mind that if we were to Skype them onto this screen behind you, would make you get up and run out of this church and never want to come back again. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. If we were to play them on the screen, you shouldn't have to get up and run out. You should be embraced. Because that's... What God created us to do, to live in interdependence, loving him, loving each other. That's why God gave us grace so we wouldn't have to pretend, so we could always know that we're accepted, so that we could always know that we're loved. A few years ago, when the second OJ episode took place, I'm not picking on OJ, I begin to reflect because I told you I liked history as a kid in school, but I really enjoyed that. But my great passion in life was sports, especially football. And I grew up during the era when O.J. Simpson was the end-all and be-all of NFL standard bearers. I mean, his ability to move on a field with a football and then to find ways to replicate that in airports over suitcases. (laughs) And then when he left football, because O.J. Had, is a good-looking guy with tremendous charm and charisma, he was able to make a few movies that people actually saw. And then we're watching, forget the first thing, the jury's still out on that. Remember the Vegas thing? We're seeing an O.J. that the public never saw. An O.J. with immense and intense anger issues, with tremendous internal turmoil and torment. And I couldn't help but wonder, when O.J. was running around without a father on the streets of Oakland, what kind of message got tattooed on his inner spirit? I thought the same thing yesterday afternoon when I was watching a little bit of television and the breaking news came on that one of the most gifted musicians and vocalists of recent years was found dead in her apartment at age 27 and the world today is mourning the loss of Amy Winehouse. And one commentator was interviewing a psychologist who was pretty insightful and she said, I wish I could know what the first five years of her life were like because there was something that took place then that she's never talked about. I wonder the same thing. Occasionally you're sitting in traffic and the car in front of you doesn't know that green means go, even in California. And the guy behind you thinks it's you and... 
I haven't done this yet, but I promise you I'm going to do it before I retire. One of these times, I'm just going to get out of my car and I'm going to walk back there and tell the rolls window down. And I'm going to say, are you okay? And after he gives me a few choice words and a gesture or two that I understand, I'm going to say, well, why, are you, why are you doing that? And he might say, well, this person's making me late and I'm going to be late for this or I'm going to be late for that and I'm going to have the audacity to say, that person didn't make you late. It was your choice not to leave the house 10 minutes earlier. Your wife couldn't find the right pair of shoes. Your baby needed a diaper change. Those are all things that you can control. But what you may not know is that it's okay, it's safe, it's actually godlike for you to tell me I have an anger problem and it's easier for me to point my finger at you than it is to own my own stuff. Or I'm going to stand in Costco or Walmart. <laughs> and kids are kids. And when they misbehave in public, they have to be corrected, but occasionally... I'll see a mom or a dad who either verbally or emotionally or sometimes physically just kind of goes off on a kid. And I'm going to walk back and say, what's going on? And they're going to say, mind your own business in real polite tones, I'm sure. (laughs) And once they're done, I'm going to look them in the eye and say, do you want that beautiful child to grow up as bitter and angry as you are? And some wife's going to say, well, I'm just so irritated. My husband works all the time. Or some dad's going to say, my wife spends all our money. Or they're going to say, well, they didn't have the product we wanted. Or my kid always behaves like that. And sure, the kid needs correction. But is it, oh, why can't you say, hey, look, I've got issues that when I was that age, my parents treated me like that. And I haven't overcome them yet. I've only tried to stifle them and pretend they didn't happen. If we were going to be real honest in here this morning, what about some of the experiences you had as recently as last night before you went to bed or on your own trip in here this morning to this worship service? And the things that have been tattooed on your life and the things that you're struggling with and and trying to break free from but don't exactly know how. Can you even tell the truth all these years later? Can you even tell whether they're truth or lies that have impacted you? Lies that you've bought into. The good news of all the Bible is God wants to wash all that stuff away. God wants to restore what has been lost or broken inside of each of every one of us. And as he does that one person at a time, he wants to develop community. He wants to develop a community of authentic, transparent, grace-filled people where we can come together and we don't have to hide or pretend, but we are all free to walk together towards hope. The Apostle Paul saw some of that kind of stuff creeping into the church at Ephesus that he loved so much. And Paul began to process what he was going to do. And Paul began to write them a very personal letter. And then right in the middle of that letter, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul actually begins praying for those people. And includes it in his letter. And Paul says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit and in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power 
out in a field, all by yourself, alone somewhere. Oops. (laughs) That you may have power with all the people. Do you know what the word all means in Greek? All. (laughs) So that you may have power together with the Lord's people. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I don't know that we can measure the fullness of God. But in God's family, you and I are invited into a new way of what it means to be human. The way that God intended from the very beginning in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 before we encounter Genesis chapter 3. God intends that the kind of love and acceptance and security that surpasses our understanding and brings a new identity and hope and freedom to be ourselves like you and I have always wanted to be. Now here's the catch. Every single one of us in this place can experience just that. But to do it, you have to risk being hurt, being known, being rejected, being judged. You have to overcome your fears. If you don't, you're never going to have people who can walk with you to face these problems. And you're going to be perpetually stuck. You not only need God, we need each other. People really can shape other people. We can shape them for good. We can shape them for bad. Teenagers call that peer pressure. So I'm wondering, why can't the people of Northgate begin shaping each other internally in the right ways? In Genesis chapter 1 and the first parts of Genesis chapter 2. And why can't we shape one another internally? And as we grow together within this community, we can start shaping the 30,000 people who call the Benicia area home externally. And we can start developing community within our community. Into the image of God. Undeniably marking each other with love, grace, mercy, and acceptance. How many of you in here are in some of a small group or a Bible study or something? A good number of you. I've had the privilege over the last 10 or 12 years of being part of some pretty good, pretty intimate, healthy, small groups. Been a part of some unhealthy ones too, and I don't particularly enjoy them. But even in the healthiest ones I've ever been involved in, most of us would get to 80, 85, occasionally 90% transparency level. But we always held back that last 10, 12, 15% because we were afraid that if they really knew that deep spot in our lives that we'd be judged, we'd be rejected, we'd be thought less of. If they knew the truth about us, they would think that God couldn't love us. Now, here's what I believe. If you're going to live that kind of authentic life and you're going to quit pretending that there are perfect people in the body, you have to risk greatly. The other side of risking greatly means that you are rewarded 
greatly. See, the only way you and I are ever going to know the fullness of God, we're ever going to appreciate his height and depth and width, is to expose ourselves to the width and depth and height and fullness of our own internal fears and to allow others to embrace us and love us as God would. Do you understand that we can heal each other through authentic confession? Now, please do not hear me saying something I'm not saying. I am in no way saying or advocating that, guys, you're going to run out of here and when you have a 4 o'clock tea time this afternoon, you start telling your golfing buddies you're junk. Not saying that, so don't quote me. (laughs) Ladies, I'm not saying that next weekend when you're having your monthly brunch with all your girlfriends that you say, hey, well, I guess I got to tell you something because this guest preacher at our church. I'm not saying that. (laughs) I'm not saying that you go out in the parking lot and you grab a bullhorn and as all these people are heading out to their cars, you go, now hear this. This is my life. I'm not advocating any of that. Because those people aren't spiritually mature enough to deal with it. I am advocating that you find a small handful, one, two, maybe no more than three, spiritually mature people of the same sex, and that's important, who can handle your junk. Because they got junk of their own, and they know that the only difference between where you are and where they are is the grace and mercy and ultimately the blood of Jesus Christ. And there becomes the freedom and the sharing and the shaping and the ultimate healing of each other as you deal with these things in a very intimate, close-knit, communal, interdependent fashion. I think that's exactly what James, the half-brother of Christ himself, had in mind when he wrote in his letter these words in James chapter 5. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of an average church-going person. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, the trick is, is without being judgmental, we've got to find somebody else who bears some semblance to the righteousness of God. Is that you? And John talks about it in, in his epistle in John chapter 1. He says, this in essence is the message we heard from Christ and are passing on to you. God is light, pure light. And there's not a trace of darkness in him. If we claim that we experience a shared life with him and continue to stumble around in the dark, we're obviously lying through our teeth. We're not living with what we claim. But if we walk in the light, God himself being the light... We also experience a shared life with one another as the sacrificed blood of Jesus, God's Son, purges all our sin. And the word all there is talking about collective. And if we claim that we're free of sin, we're only fooling ourselves. A claim like that is errant nonsense. On the other hand, if we admit our sins and make a clean breast of them, He won't let us down. He'll be true to Himself. He'll forgive our sins and purge us of all, there's that word again, wrongdoing. And if we claim that we've never sinned, we're out and out contradicting God. We're making a liar out of him. A claim like that only shows off our ignorance of God. And folks, that right there is exactly what God's calling Northgate to. 
It's what God's calling all of his kingdom to. It's what God's calling the body of Christ to. That we become a place, we become a community where grace abounds. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not. Grace doesn't happen in your school, does it? Grace doesn't happen on your job. If we're going to be real honest, grace doesn't happen in most of our households. Grace doesn't happen at the mall. But you and I can choose to make it happen here. And if it's happening here, we can all grow in the freedom, the hope, the love of Jesus Christ. You say, well, David, why? I've been a Christian for a while. Why would I risk being vulnerable like that? The answer is pretty simple. It's really straightforward. Because it's the only path to personal, emotional, and spiritual freedom. See, the greatest power Satan has in your life is the power of your secrets. And I know an awful lot of well-meeting, God-loving, church-participating people that Satan still has them bound because of their secrets. And once your secret is gone, so too is the hold of Satan in your life gone. Now, some of you in this room might be elders, ministry team leaders, some staff people. This begins with you. This begins with you facing yourself and having the spiritual maturity to face yourself before God. And then as you see others who are growing in the same spiritual maturity, facing it with one or two of them. And as you do, you begin to model it for this congregation. And as this congregation understood and recognizes that that true humility and courage, it's a perfect combination, is being experienced among the leadership, the elders, the staff, the ministry team facilitators, the small group leaders. So too then will they begin to gravitate. And there's this magnetic pull on our lives through the scripture towards one another that is undeniable. And guess what happens then? Once it starts happening here and you go out and you begin to live out your lives and you eat in your restaurants and you go to your jobs and you work in your factories and you go fishing on your boats and you go skiing in the winter, you begin to have the same impact on this community called Benicia. And folks... That was God's plan in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And as Sean led us, that was God's plan when he sent his son to the cross. Not for us to live half-hearted, unfulfilled, rule-playing, perfect people, pretension life. But to live authentically, freed through the blood of Jesus Christ, Mutually loved and yet held accountable by one another for the glory of God and the good of all of humankind. And so, God, I'm just a guest here. I risk being rejected by being this honest. I may get to come back next week and never be invited again. But God, I don't think it's an accident that when my friend came here, I got to meet this great pastor named Ken. I got to know a little bit about this church and I got to know a little bit about Ken's heart. And then God, over the course of time, Ken trusted me enough that he invited me to stand in his place while he's off getting refreshed before you. And I don't think it's any accident that I'm sharing this message here today, God. I think you structured and ordained all of this. 
And God, I don't know these people individually. I know very few names in here. And yet, God, you know every single one of us in this room and you know exactly what's going on in our lives and you know exactly what to do with these words. And so, God, I pray for the leaders, for the staff and the elders and the ministry team leaders and the small group facilitators that you would begin to burn and churn inside of their souls. In Genesis 1 and most of chapter 2, becomes their calling card. The God, the clarion call is loud today. And then God, I pray that as they begin to live it, they begin to model it. And as they begin to model it, there's this magnetic pull through them from your word onto the lives of the people who call Northgate their home. And then through the lives of the people who call Northgate their home to their coworkers and to this community and into Little League. God, give us great grace. Give us great mercy. Give us abundant freedom that exceeds our greatest expectations so that we might have ultimate impact and dream great dreams. God, we love you. We honor you. We worship you. We praise you. God, next week we're going to talk about that you love us so much that you don't want us to stay that way. And I pray that you bring us back. God, we honor you with our worship this morning. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California.